0: All through the universe, it's being fought, all through the cosmos, and my, but it's an exciting battle. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club where we are exploring the scientific, adventurous, heart deep book of Wrinkle and Time. I have so been enjoying reading all of your comments and thoughts on this book that's so dear to my heart. And the great fun about how I've been doing the book club this summer is that I've been inviting a friend to discuss the book with me every week, which is really how it should be. So I don't know why I wasn't doing this way before, but today I have, the guest perhaps that I've been looking most forward to because there's no one better in the world to discuss books with than one's sister. So today oh. I am welcoming Sarah Clarkson, Sarah Finkinson, I suppose, my wonderful <laughs> sister. Welcome to oh, the show, hello, Sarah. everybody.
1: Oh, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Oh, this is going to be so much fun. So Sarah, I, of course, I know you quite intimately, but I suppose I should provide some introduction to you. So okay. tell us about where you are, what you're up to, what you spend your days doing.
1: Well, I am currently in a little town on the south coast of England. Um, I lived here with my husband, who is a curate in the Church of England. It's, it's all very uh, British novel. I feel like I'm in a trollop <laughs> novel or a Booge novel many of my days. Um, I, I go back and forth between chasing two adorable little elfin children, um, Lillian and Samuel. Lillian's two and Samuel's oh my goodness, six months, and, and then trying to write when I have the time. So I'm, I'm currently at work on a book. I do some things on Instagram and my blog, and I, I generally do a lot of thinking and reading and writing, and then when I have time, I you know, get out and tell the world about it. And in the between, I do a lot of sitting on the garden and making flower crowns with Lillian.
0: Oh, she is at such a fun stage. You really do have <laughs> elfin children? I, when I was visiting last, I don't know why, but I was surprised by how Scandinavian they look because they really do. You know, you and I have dark hair and, you know, and we're both very pale, but they're just the cutest little elf babies, doll babies. They
1: really are. Well, Thomas, my husband is um He's half Danish and half Dutch, so there is that Scandinavian strain. But because we're both darker, I always assumed we'd have little dark-haired babies, but they are about as blonde as can be.
0: (laughs) It's so very, very cute. And I know that a lot of people will know you from Instagram on Sarah Wonders, where you post poetry readings and beautiful things. And it was really fun because I actually had several people last week comment on the chapter I did with Sarah Cozart because it was all about you know, bracing ourselves with beauty um, before we encounter darkness. And people said, isn't Sarah writing a book about that? (laughs) So are you? Well, tell us about it.
1: I am currently sitting at my desk whenever I have a moment and hammering out a book about it. The title is officially um, this beautiful truth, how God's goodness breaks into our darkness. And it is basically the book that has grown in my heart and soul and mind over really about the last 20 years. And then when I finally had time to really think about it from a theological point of view, it kind of came to being. But it's basically um, the story of kind of my coming to terms with OCD mental illness uh, when I was in my teens and then just the way that that forced me into this place where I was questioning who God is and how is he present to us and the way that I wrestled in so many ways with some of the answers I was given about him that just made God seem very distant to me. But then I had these moments of beauty in which I encountered this redemptive goodness that spoke to me of um, of hope and of redemption and of healing in a way that allowed me to keep my faith and keep walking forward. And I think that as I finally had the chance to study it, and I actually spent my, my gosh, I guess my four years at Oxford mostly studying theodicy. So how, God is, how do we defend God's goodness in an evil world? And I've come to this real conviction that one of the great and powerful ways God speaks to us in a fallen and broken world is by sending his beauty, by the by the things that we often discount as peripheral to our lives, but in art and music and story and the touch of people who love us and nature, I think we are encountered by this ongoing goodness of God. And so I wanted to write about this and really kind of offer people the chance to see the way that I do believe God is reaching out to us in our suffering amidst our brokenness. He's never silent. He's never not active in our, in our hurt. He's there. He's present. He's creating. So... That is the book that I am trying to wrestle out in my spare moments. <laughs>
0: and what a time in the world to be wrestling with that, too, um, and to I be know, thinking I'm about that. Gimmick. <laughs> it really is. Uh, as, it's yeah, quite something. No, well, I can't, I can't wait to read it. And, um, and it feels so very applicable to this chapter and to, to all of our lives, I think. Last week we were talking about how when they go to see the dark thing, they're given these white flowers that they have to keep. Yes near, um because they will it's like they'll choke or they'll suffocate without the beauty that helps them to breathe in the face of the darkness and oh, that's such
1: an amazing image
0: it is and I think that that was really helpful to me before we dive into the um the chapter you know hearing you talk about that of course you're my older sister and <laughs> it's been such a gift to me that as I think we all come to encounter questions of you know how how to live well in the face of suffering and how do we make sense of the God who is good and the beauty mm-hmm. that we encounter. It's always been such a gift to me to have you who's already been wrestling with these things 10 years ahead of me and you who oh. is trailing books and uh, behind <laughs> you as you go. <laughs> trailing
1: books behind me. Yes.
0: and <laughs> Yes. And um, even I think of with Madeline Lingle, um, this summer I've been reading some of her books which I've stolen off of the shelves that you left here Excellent. in our Colorado house. So all this to say... How did you first encounter Malin Lingle and what do you think of her in general?
1: Well, That is an excellent question. Um, Actually, she was one of the people I read. There was a, in my, in my first year of 17 of, of kind of questioning everything. I mean, I was a teenager, so I was questioning everything Mm -hmm. anyway, but um, definitely with the added uh, complications of OCD. Um, She was one of um, three authors, three or four authors that, um, I did the most rebellious thing I could think of as a good little Christian girl decided not to read my Bible for a year. <laughs> but but I read Tolkien and Madeleine Engel and C.S. Lewis and George MacDonald. And, you know, God had his sense of humor laughing in his sleeve. But I read her books at that time. And they were so um, full of, I think, a rejoicing in the beauty of the world that they helped me to encounter God again as this good and creative and beautiful father so I actually came across one of her lesser-known books first was um, the Genesis trilogy Mm. um, where she's writing through kind of the mythical early not mythical but she would see them as these mythically shaped stories um, of early of, of Genesis and you know, what does it look like to be the Jacob wrestling with God? And what does that look like to wrestle with the evil of the world? And these were, she just spoke straight to my heart. And then of course I, and I do remember um, before that I had always thought she was really lovely because I remember mom, mom's favorite book for so long was A Wrinkle in Time. And so of course we read that um together, I think out loud one summer. Um, but then I think I really took her for my own at that point. And I just, pretty much, um, during that year, read everything I could get my hands on. So I started with that. I found walking on water and felt that my, you know, my identity as a Christian artist was confirmed forever <laughs> and, um, moved on to, I love her, um, her Crosswicks journals. Oh. I think those are some of my favorites, the story of the marriage and the the two part invention and her summer of the great grandmother. And, um, so yes, she is, I, I really was devastated when she died and I realized that I couldn't, you know, fulfill my lifelong dream of showing up at her apartment door in New York city.
0: <laughs> I know it's really so sad. I feel like one of the things that's been that everyone I've talked to has said is there's something everyone finds relatable or like a friend in her writings. You know, when I talking to me hey, ha- when I was talking to Haley Stewart and she was talking to me in her attic where she's been doing her writing projects while her children scuttle around really downstairs delightful. and yeah. she was like I related so much to reading about her wrestling with being a mother and a writer but like for you that you found her she really is a writer who I identified with I think we both did at various points mm-hmm. in that wrestling with with doubting and wanting to believe because yeah she didn't write as someone who was on the other side she wrote as someone who was wanting very much to believe in God and wanting to know what it was like. And so reading her in that space is very cathartic and helpful, not just cathartic, but helpful. It kind of pushes you forward without making you feel like she's already found all the answers.
1: She's both a companion and a mentor at the same time. Yeah. And, and I think you really do see this, this gradual growth of faith. If you follow her, her works from the early to the later, you, you see these this gradual deepening of a kind of orthodoxy and her, her depth of understanding in certain areas. And I, I think it's quite beautiful. Um, it means, and I think it's quite a, a, in a way, it's very vulnerable for her to be willing to wrestle these things out in a in a public way, wrestling them out through her writing. I think it's rather fascinating that she kind of had the, the courage to do that and well, to grow and to change as she wrote.
0: And you were telling, uh, and I think this would be a good story to start with and then we can dive into the chapter. You were telling the story of... Mm-hmm. Have, of what well, I'll let you tell the story, but basically that this, this book is pretty early on in her writing, which also yes. means that it's pretty early on in her wrestlings with faith and with science. And it, it's pretty early in that process. So it was yes. a story you told me just before we started.
1: Well, and now I'm sitting here thinking, where did I read that? I feel like I should give, you know, citations for it. But I think, I I, know I, think I, I remember reading it and I think, ago.
0: I think I remember reading it as well. And I think it's in the, one of the journals. I
1: think it's in one of the journals, but basically, um, so she lived in New York city, um, with her actor husband but then they had a for summers and weekends which i think was quite common then a um, a home in connecticut which was very, very deep in the countryside and that's where they spent a lot of time with their children but she was quite a a young believer in that sense at that time maybe not even quite a believer yet because I, I the story i remember is that she um when she moved to this farmhouse she marched down to i don't remember what the local church was unitarian or something but went to the pastor and said i don't believe in god but i don't think i can raise my children without him and <laughs> I just, and I I think that that was the era in which she started writing Wrinkle in Time. I think Wrinkle was, I think it was over 10 years, it's something either 10 years that it took the writing or 10 years of rejection before it was actually picked up. Years when she was writing out in a little studio outside the house and, you know, pounding out her doubts and her creative thoughts. So I I find it very encouraging
0: (laughs) to say,
1: these thoughts in my tiny room. So I, I liked that story
0: quite a lot yes i like that quite a lot too and i think that shows just how kind of open and hungry and um imaginative and persistent she was and as we get into this chapter you kind of realize why people thought it was an odd book for children like she goes straight she's you know (laughs) this one we're talking about dimensions and anyway so let us dive into this week's chapter okay which is this one called wrinkle wrinkling i think I think it's t- Tesseract, maybe? Tesseract. There we go. So, yes, the Tesseract. So I always try to start with just kind of an overview of everything that happens. And then we'll dive into the themes. So what generally happens in this one?
1: All right. So I think that they – now, I, I was reading – okay. So they'd seen the dark thing. Yes. And then I think it opens with Meg's reaction to the that, her sobbing is. and crying aloud. And then I think very quickly after that, they are taken – I think it's a it's
0: first um, to the two-dimensional place, right?
1: Yes, they're taken to see something specific to their They need to resist it And they need to do something because mm-hmm. I think that that's what mrs. Witch says is don't despair You're already going to do something, but we have to go somewhere first But then they they land they try to land on the two-dimensional planet because then...
0: mrs. Witch has <laughs> she doesn't usually uh, Manifest physically and so she forgets it
1: doesn't realize the complications of embodiment.
0: Yes, indeed um, And then they they show up in the, the happy mediums world, right? which
1: I just get tickled every time I come across her, her name, <laughs> the happy medium.
0: <laughs> oh, the happy. And it's funny she because was, she was
1: having fun with all of us.
0: Oh, she was. And because that's something that people keep on telling Meg, she needs to achieve because you know, Meg <laughs> yes. is this, Meg is this great, you know, boiling teapot of complicated emotions all the time. I've been, I,
1: I so identify with Meg. I
0: do too. I've been, uh, I've been listening to, in addition to reading the audiobook that Madeline Lingle reads, and I feel like yes. every line that Meg has, she screams it. It's like she's yeah. just in this constant state it's, of
1: it's all block capitals. <laughs>
0: yes, just really big emotions all the time. Um, and so they keep on. She's had numerous family members tell her she needs to be the happy medium. And then we actually meet so we a happy meet. medium. Indeed. The happy
1: medium. Yes. No.
0: And there's the re- so, yes.
1: And I think we're. Ex- I think the tesseracting is explained. The science of it.
0: Oh yes. And then um. that's right. And then the I can't remember which order that happens. But then the happy medium she's she has to show them something that they need to know before they can go on this journey and that thing and that thing is
1: it is their own world surrounded by the dark thing and what a terrible view that is
0: yes and then um and then but they're shown this from this perspective so that they can kind of know that they're going to be invited into the journey of of fighting it which is the quote that i read in the opening yes Exactly.
1: They begin to discuss that.
0: And then um, they're set up to go help their father, and but they're told that they have to prepare themselves because he is on a planet that has given in to the Dark Thing. There, that
1: is a, a terrible thing. It's a
0: terrible thing because our planet may have the Dark Thing over it, but it's not. it hasn't it's given in given yet. End. Also, that reminded me very much of in... Um, the Cosmos Trilogy, C.S. Lewis's, it reminds me of...
1: Several things in this have reminded me of that as well.
0: It reminds me of, you know, the is it the first book that's called Out of the Silent Planet?
1: Yes. Yes. And it's the bent um, bent god of that world. Yes. And
0: the idea that our planet has kind of been almost like while the rest of the world, while the rest of the cosmos is enraptured in these singing spheres, our world has become quiet and silent because of the the rule over it. And it reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm going to, we'll just dive into the different themes we, we see just, just for fun. I thought I would talk very quickly about the kind of scientific uh, <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> bits that we get in this. And you were saying this for too, she was just very fascinated with science. And I think she didn't think of it as like there's science and that's the rational, and then there's wonder and beauty. It was like for her science very much opened up this capacity
1: Well, and I wondered if she grew up in an age in which there was that division, because you think about the time that, I mean, she would have been alive around the time of the Scopes trials and all these things where you had, where where there was this division culturally between the religious and the scientific that kind of stemmed from, you know, all the debates about Darwin and the Victorian age. But I think that she was very, um, I think part of her journey of faith was realizing that these all integrated within each other and that they were not a threat to each other but you can see the wonders and glories of God within science and science can illuminate our understanding of who God is and how he works
0: exactly and one of the things she talks about in this chapter is um, it's basically addressing the idea uh, that finding out the wondrous hugeness of the cosmos shouldn't make us think well therefore we're very small and don't mean anything Um, and uh, because you know she says when she's talking about them being surprised that some of the best warriors against the dark thing are from our very tiny earth. Um, and she says, um, it's hard for you to understand size, how there's very little difference in the size of a tiny microbe and a greatest galaxy. And, um, it reminded me of in, in GK Chesterton and Orthodoxy, which I did for my book club last year, where he talks about, um, he says, the notion that the size of the solar system ought to (laughs) overawe the spiritual dogma of man, why should a man surrender his dignity to a solar system any more than to a <laughs> whale
1: <laughs> If mere size is good.: Oh. Go Sorry,
0: go oh no. go if mere size proves that man is not in the image of God, then a whale may be in the image of God. A somewhat formless image, what one might call an impressionist portrait. Uh, but <laughs> I-, I think this is one of the things she's helping us kind of do away with is Just because we discovered the vastness of the universe doesn't somehow mean that, therefore, we don't mean anything.
1: Well, and I would add to that, too, this reminds me so much of, of C.S. Lewis's. He hated for his his books to be called the Space Trilogy. So you correctly called them the Cosmic Trilogy because he hated the, the modern notion of space, that there was this vast nothingness, because he really, though though the medieval view of the cosmos was, you know, of course, not scientifically accurate in the same way. I think he would still say spiritually there is truth in it. And he said what he he thought it should be called is the heavens, because in the medieval view, there is this understanding that every layer of the world was rich and it was peopled with glory and song and music and spirits. And there was nothing void in the whole universe. The whole universe hummed and moved and danced and all things were moved by the great mover. And yeah, I think there's an extent to which, like especially, um, is it the chapter before where the children... Hear the great songs. Yes. That those, that yeah. The great beings are singing. That this is the the undergirding music of the universe. There's a sense in which I think she's really tapping tapping into the medieval view mm-hmm. of the whole. And because of and, and in that view, everything is precious because everything is is an intricate part of this perfectly made whole. And so nothing is insignificant within it.
0: Yes, and she goes to a great extent to prove that because one of the books literally takes place in a mitochondria. Yes. Uh,
1: which is delightful
0: so so there's this vastness and this tininess and um and i just i just love that and um also on a little nerdy reference when they appear in the little two-dimensional uh phrase so she does a really good Mm -hmm. job of describing the different dimensions and today i was sitting in a coffee shop with my mask on googling second dimension third dimension fourth dimension and um there's a book called flatland which is this little novella
1: yeah, I've heard about, about this.
0: About people who live in a two-dimensional world, and then a sphere appears in the world, and everyone's trying to figure out what the sphere is. And it's this very weird little social commentary. But it's also supposed—I think—it's supposed to be a little bit of an image in our minds of how we could imagine uh, the incarnation. Like, if mm-hmm. if God is the sphere who appears into our two-dimensional world, we won't perceive him <laughs> as a sphere. We'll perceive him as you know as a circle. As what
1: he is within us, yeah.
0: But that that can you know expand much beyond that. So I think that when they appear in the two-dimensional. The is a little reference to that but also the fourth dimension I was researching it today is the idea of time oftentimes it's often mm-hmm. described as time which makes sense when she talks about a wrinkle in time um, yes and she has in other books she develops this idea of Kairos and Kronos um, mm-hmm. and the idea that there's God's time and the world's time and Kronos of course is is So that's like chronological, I think about that word. It's just the time ticking onwards, ever forwards, you know, bearing us ceaselessly, ceaselessly yes. whatever Fitzgerald dramatically said. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but then, but Kairos is is God's time. It's the way he experiences time, the world yeah. as outside and as there being meaning and uh, a presence and witness. And I think that's kind of evoked too, as we feel like they've been taken out of the chronos of their own world. Into the kind of kairos to where the they can wider. see, yeah, where they can see the purposes and the meaning.
1: Yeah, there's there's, there's eternal perspective when you stand within that way of time.
0: Yes, and um, I think that's really lovely. So those are my my random bits on. Uh, uh, they're not a unified thought, but Scientific. little bits <laughs> Scientific. on science. You know, just because we're small doesn't mean we're meaningless. Herb, things on time and flatland. Like so what were some? So what were some of the things you saw or things you noticed?
1: Um, I'll just, there are two things straight off. Well, I think one of the first things I, I just like this about it, um, is the chapter opens with, um, Meg's reaction to seeing the darkness yeah. and, um, it says Meg began to cry to sob aloud, um, through her tears. She could see Charles Wallace standing there very small and very white and she, uh, Calvin put his arms around her, but she shuddered and broke away sobbing wildly. And then later on when, um, Charles Wallace sees, I think it's Charles Wallace. when it he sees, Wallace, yeah. yeah um, when he sees the dark thing surrounding Mm -hmm. his home planet of earth, he says, I hate it. And he cries passionately. I hate the dark thing. And I think, um, because I've thought so much about like, what, what is the reaction God asks of us when we are in suffering? And I think sometimes we have this idea that there's, we're supposed to accept what is dark, evil, just be stoic or not have emotion about it. And I actually think if you look throughout scripture and if you look at the way that god encounters evil and suffering it is with a passionate um it's, it's this grief and this hatred it is a resistance to um protest of of what is dark and evil there is no there's no sense of this is part of the plan this is necessary to to creation or to the purposes of god there's a we are allowed and we're actually invited i think to protest and to grieve and it is out of that that full freedom of grieving that we then have the capacity to step up and become agents who resist it. Because I think that, um, I've written about Tolkien, um, a lot and I, I'm working, that's going to be my next book is Tolkien (laughs) and how his experience of darkness and war was a very different reaction to many of his contemporaries because, um, you know, he came out of the great war and at that time a lot of people many in his generation lost faith because They they'd lost hold of all the landmarks of belief And what do you do in a world that is so evil? And they they had no mechanism to resist or know that they could be outraged But Tolkien had this sense of outrage about the darkness and I think that that I love Charles Wallace's and um, Meg's response in this because I think it's been what helps them to be fighters I think that that is one of the great things and I think it usually fall, yeah um yeah because right oh that's right after it they say when calvin says we know it's evil but what is it and and meg said what's going to happen and the answer is we will continue to fight Hmm. and i think that that fighting um has its roots in in the holy grief over what Hmm. is broken and what is lost
0: i i think that's so beautiful and i think to me it kind of what it asks us to do in the face of evil is to take an active stance, right? To be angry at it, to think that we can that we can fight against yes. it is to not feel entirely powerless. And sometimes I wonder if the reason that we think that we should be, you know, stoic or whatever is partially just kind of self-protective because it's like mm-hmm. when I feel angry, I, I I begin to feel afraid or overwhelmed or like yes. I can't actually react to this. And in some ways it's like, like when you're talking about the reactions to World War II or World War One, and and the sense of uh, kind of giving up on faith, it's also it's almost like resigning yourself to an evil that you can't control. Whether you do that in a I in a kind of rounded,
1: yeah. in a
0: predetermined way, in a faith where you say, "Well, God intended this and it's for good," or so I if just it's need to accept it. yeah, or if it's just an nihilist way, it's kind of this sense of I really can't do anything about it. I'm really lost. Whereas yes,
1: I empower this. whereas
0: i think that making yourself vulnerable to it and feeling anger and all those things first of all it testifies the depth of anger that meg feels testifies to the fact that she knows that it's not right that she's meant for something better well and, i think it's
1: jesus weeping at the tomb of lazarus he knew yeah. he was going to raise him he yeah. knew what was powerful and possible but he wept because this is this is wrong this is not as it ought to be
0: It is. And that's actually really powerful. And I think people can feel afraid of accessing that Mm. tenderness to the world because you're afraid, well, what if I just never stop weeping? Do you know what I mean? Or what if I, what if I access that? But I think being open to that is also being open to love. And I think it's at the end of the next chapter where the happy medium says, oh, it's this problem that I have is getting fond of people. I could always be happy if I weren't fond of people. Um, But I think it's that very attachment, that willingness to be upset that also inclines us to love. And that's how you fight the battle.
1: Absolutely. I completely agree.
0: Yeah. And so, and I love that too, because I think it really celebrates Meg's kind of out of controlness. Her. Well,
1: I think it, I think it brings, it makes it kind of holy in a way. And Mm. it, and I think much of the book is her learning what to do with her emotion Mm. and how this can be healthy and how this can be part of her strength. Yeah. because I think she has always seen it as a weakness and as, you know, her great fault. and The tears and she I, could never it,
0: control when she sees, you know.
1: Yes, and I think that part of the story is, I mean, it's, it's such an intricately woven story. You know, you have the mm-hmm. themes of defeating evil and, and finding her father, and, but so much of it is about Meg's development as an agent of power and emotion and love who is no longer out at ends and can see, sees herself as broken or or just not enough somehow are not capable and seeing herself as capable of resisting evil, of bringing love, of, I think there's just such a beautiful progression of her her heart and self throughout the story
0: yes, and I think I like the idea of embracing if when we encounter evil if what it makes us want to do is sob that could be a very healthful powerful Absolutely. response because it's yeah. it's a declaration of this is not how it was meant to be and no. But the thing is, if we have, if we, and it's not how it ha- must be, it's not how it must be. And that's
1: where I think there, there doesn't need to be the fear that I'll sob forever because yeah, what my grief is doing is it's bringing me forward into a place where I can glimpse hope again yes. and be drawn forward into the action and, and onto the stage where the great battle is being fought and knowing that I'm being called to play a part so that the world yes. will be remained so that healing will come.
0: And I think that's the thing with the grief is that it's pulling me forward because it's testifying to the life that I was meant to live. And yes, which gives it's you testifying
1: to something that was broken and that will be healed.
0: Yes, and so it pushes you forward. It gives you the strength to become a yeah. part of the battle. Well, And then you have this wonderful... I just love how she gives us this imagination of the darkness that's being fought. fought all through the universe is being fought. It's a grand, exciting battle. Um, and I love that She says, it may seem strange to you that some of our very best fighters have come right from your own planet and it's a little planet dears. <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's kind of sweet. <laughs> yes. And what do you think of that whole section where she kind of, she gives us this picture of all the fighters? Uh, we were talking about how she, well, you tell me what you think of it then I'll tell you my thoughts too.
1: Well, I think, I mean, when I first read this, I was just delighted to, it, it was such a, It's not. I think just to have those different names, Shakespeare and Bach and Pasteur and Madame Curie and Einstein, it was this, It's this. it creates such a wide view of what it means to fight the darkness. And I think mm-hmm. it broadens it from a very narrow definition of of whatever we think just fight the darkness goodness. Fighting should be. Moral well, this is what I would say. I think that it widens it to say fighting darkness isn't being grim and angry yeah. and fighting. Fighting darkness is creating. Yes. Fighting darkness is loving. It's about... Creating and nothingness in the image of God. I mean, I think very much each of these people was following what God did when He looked over the void um, and said, "Let there be light." Spoke, "Let there be light," and I think that's why. And I and I think that she, I mean, obviously, is identifying Jesus. And, and I think begins. I think you said this um, mm-hmm. very much. Opens with Jesus saying, "This is the light." This, yeah. I mean, that, that was very much your what you were saying. The light shining from the darkness. Um, but then each of these other people, they are creating light. So, and i think that's such an important distinction is that we don't resist evil um by sitting in our closets and
0: looking very, very upset very, yeah
1: and looking very upset we resist it by becoming its opposite and yes um, which we, is exactly what christ did
0: yeah well and it was funny because we, we were talking just before this about how some i think some readers you know she was a she was a banned book um i think christianity <laughs> today is specifically kind of you know took a stand against her at some point. Um, I think specifically because of this chapter where she she begins with Jesus and then gives this whole list of people, including Buddha and various things. But I think that she does something very important here because they've just been looking at the darkness. And then they say, well, who are the people who fight against it? And she quotes uh, in the beginning uh, was the light and the light and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then he says, of course, Jesus. But the thing that she's doing with that is she's setting that on a, she's setting Jesus on a different plane because it's yes. there is the darkness and then Jesus is the light.
1: Is the light. He's he not just light. a
0: light bearer, he is the light. And then all of these He's other people himself. are are warriors for the light. They are testaments to it, people who lived within They're
1: it. Followers. followers of the way. wielders but, of the light.
0: wielders of the light, yes. But I don't think she's trying to just say, Well, there's Jesus and all these other people. It's I think she's no. saying and of course this is at the beginning of her kind of journey of realizing that. Well
1: and I think that's important to understand too, not just that it was the beginning, but also she had been reading her way to christ in a way and yeah. the understanding that in these different ways uh, you know i think it's, it's very much like um in the last battle with um mm-hmm. uh the, when C.S. Lewis's story when, when that yeah there's tash and there's aslan and tash is the false evil god and this one man thinks he's been he thinks he's been worshiping tash his whole life and he's like i made a mistake and aslan says no no, no you you cannot render holiness to a false god it was always mm-hmm. me you were worshiping even when you did not know And I think that there's that aspect here as well. Um, Yeah. yeah, There's always the holy and the good and the beautiful will always be drawn. Yes. To their source, which is Christ.
0: Yes. I I was really impacted by it when one of my professors in my undergraduate would always say that we are responsible for the light that has been given to us. And Mm. I think, uh, you know, that we, that whatever truth, beauty, goodness that we respond to wholeheartedly that is what God will hold us responsible to. And I think that's kind of the picture that she's giving is she's kind of getting this gradually clearer picture of the light, but all of these people saw the light. It's Augustine, you know, very, uh, very paraphrased said, all truth is God's truth. You know, he is the Lord of all. And so we don't need to be afraid of saying that, you know, someone who didn't exactly tick off all the boxes may still have testified to and lived for the light because they're
1: pushing towards it.
0: And we, Hold them accountable for uh, the light that they were given. It's very like in Dante when he's like, "Well, Virgil, he got like most of it, you know. He just yeah, know. he just had he just hadn't got the revelation <laughs> yet,
1: right there. <laughs> yeah. So yes. no, I think that's very true. And I I do I love that the people she's immediately, um, you know, Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Shakespeare and Bach. Um, I heard an argument recently. that's basically like, you know, you can do apologetics, and then you could also just say because Bach lives, God must have lived. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's some truth to that argument. I mean, there are some creations and some beauties that are so great that they demand a response of awe and wonder and and of worship from the soul. And I I think that that is what she's getting at here is these these creators, these makers, these scientists, these discoverers um, in their work and in what they have created are witnessing to a light that is greater than the darkness and endures beyond the touch of death. Yeah. And I think I, I so I love her her list of artists and of course yes. at seventeen I kind of was like yes, yes. I too shall be shall be creator of, of light.
0: I, and I I still feel that way. I do too. And I this is so funny. I've read so many L'Engle books that I can't always remember which book I, I know. Was from. <laughs> it's right. But I one of them I read a couple of years back. She talks about universe disturbers, and she talks about how there's you know there's people who do great acts of evil that seem to disrupt our cosmos. She has this she very much the world and the cosmos, which is created and ordered and beauty and light. And then chaos, which kind of uncreates. Mm. And she says, there's people who are universe disturbers who disturb the chaos or disturb the cosmos and they turn it to chaos. Mm. But then, um, people who create in the image of God, who are like God, who are the light bearers are people who enter chaos and create cosmos. And that's kind of what I feel like all of these people she talks about are. They're people who, who in the image of God, uh, looked into that darkness, and spoke light, and created light.
1: Absolutely.
0: I thought it was funny, I was reading, um, I was reading some commentaries in this chapter, and they were saying that it's interesting that when Meg is asked, come on Meg, who can you can think of, she references to scientists.
1: I um, think that's fascinating. Which too. is yep.
0: interesting, because obviously, I think that, I think melilingual definitely thinks that that is a part of you know, revealing the glory of God is seeing the intricacy of the world. But I think it's also a little bit because Meg hasn't yet owned that her emotional, passionate reaction to the world could actually be mm. a part of bearing light to the world. You know what I mean? She kind of feels like mm. it's almost like she depends on something that can control or explain or understand. That's interesting. So I don't know what I thought of that. Cause I was like, no, but she's also very into science. But I thought that was an interesting comment that those are the two things that she notes
1: the she notes i would also say and i because i think that that could be very true i also would say from a slightly different point of view i was actually kind of amused by that because um, you know they've seen this dark thing and i think that one of meg's strengths is that she is she never loses her loyalty to her, her first object is her father hmm. is and and so she's kind of impatient with this litany of whatever yes, whatever yes, yes, everybody has i want to understand how do i save my father and i and, think that mm. there is an insistence on in her on but but what is the core of this this is someone I love and I think that's what makes her powerful um Mm. not to give anything away but later in the book um so I think I was reading that thing that's interesting because I think
0: even that she's thinking abstract Mm -hmm.
1: yeah well it's so easy to abstract the battle against the light when what it is is we're fighting for those we love and we're serving those we love and we are you know it is those around us every day that we contend for and fight for and and it is um the plane of the personal and the ordinary that the light or the darkness advances or is beaten back. And so I, I think I liked that, that, that aspect of it.
0: Yes. I do love that about Meg that she's just, she's impatient because the reason she's gone on this cosmic journey is out of love for her father. And I think about that a lot lately, you know, the world can feel (laughs) so just overwhelming, but when I, and I think part of the overwhelmingness of it is it turns everything and everyone and every place into this abstraction that must either be yes. condemned or managed or controlled. But when we, when we love, when we turn things from the abstraction to the particular, there is this power and this kind of obviousness about what must be done. Do you know what I mean? I think
1: it's very incarnational. I yeah. think it is the way that God works. I think. He comes to save the world and he becomes a particular human baby in a particular town and he heals You know the little daughter of a man named Jairus and Mm. he uses a little boy who feeds you know loaves and fishes it Christ comes in the particular he doesn't come in the abstract he comes here and now and to this person and in this life and this moment. um, I think that that is it's one of the great things that evil doesn't understand because Mm. there is such an immense power and yet it is a hidden power. I yeah. think it'll be revealed in the end. I but I think too. that in the broken world, I think it is this hidden power of the particular
0: yes. and
1: the intimate and the personal.
0: And I've always loved the verse in John where it says the darkness does not comprehend it. Because mm-hmm. I think that's the thing is there's this sense in which the darkness can't understand the power of this vulnerable particular love. Yeah, that the it's God the foolishness
1: shows. of Christ that yeah. confounds the wisdom of the world.
0: It is indeed. Okay, wait. I have one other thing that we talked about that we okay. just have maybe we can speculate about as we draw towards the Oh, them.
1: yes. I'm still fascinated by this.
0: So, so one of the things that we get in the midst of this story is Mrs. um it's Mrs. What's it's story, right? That she was a star and yes. that she she loses her starness in the battle for um for goodness and light. But you and I both notice the same thing, <laughs> which is that there's a moment where um, Is it? where Meg's fi- feeling really distraught and they're all concerned. And then it says, Mrs. What's it? The comforter, right? The comforter. It uses that specific hey, word. Where have we heard this language before? Why, Sarah, I believe we have heard it in the gospel of John. Correct.
1: Joy. <laughs> and who does this language refer to? Oh, this sorry, la- to whom? <laughs> <laughs> to whom
0: um, It refers to the Holy Spirit. And so you and I were talking about, are they angels? Just, Are they a picture of? I mean,
1: it seems to me they must be created beings because yes. of some other clues. And yet, I started thinking: Well, if Mrs. Watson is the comforter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have—I like, always get—is Mrs. Witch is the one who can't materialize very yes. much or doesn't materialize? Yes. So like, well, we're talking about the father, you know, who's—he's—you he's, know—beyond the touch of the ordinary. So here's okay. there's the father, and then there's Mrs. Who, who. The word everything about her is wor- words, quotes, the way she, she materializes is, is as the living words. And then there's Mrs. What's it who is the youngest and who translates the other two to the children so that they understand and, un- and understand the mission and everything is made clear and she reminds them of what the other two mean. And I was kind of like, there's a trinitarian aspect to their working, and I just think Madela Engel is too clever not to have been aware of that.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, uh, I it just or
1: perhaps to have created it.
0: <laughs> I know, indeed, and it does feel like they're kind of functioning in this trinitarian way. And I don't know. Did she mean it? Is it shocking? What do we think of it?
1: I know. And I, she's probably very content to let us all sit there and stew about it. And and I I look forward to asking her in heaven.
0: (laughs) Is this what you intended? Yes. But either, but either way, I do think that Mrs. Wetsit is, is this kind of, I think she is something of a Holy Spirit figure. I think that's very true. She's She's like
1: like a Gandalf figure. She's, she kindles and she comforts and she aids and she helps them to do what they must. She doesn't do it for them. Yes. But she prepares and helps and, yeah, and encourages them yes. in their in their roles I think as
0: wives. Yes, I agree very much indeed. So, Sarah, do you have any final thoughts or things people should think about as they're finishing up this chapter?
1: Um, what do I think? I think that people should consider themselves as agents and consider how they are meant to be agents in the fight against the darkness.
0: I agree um, very much.
1: I just don't think you could read a book like this without wondering, huh, how could all of my faults and flaws, meg-like, be be caught up in the fight against evil? At least that's how I think. And I find it very encouraging to know that that the the possibility that all of of my foibles and frailties could possibly be caught up and used by God to do something small or mighty in my own little realm of battle. So I think, yeah, that's a very... It's a bit of an abstract thought, but there you go. <laughs> I think that <laughs> You can
0: particularize it in your own lives. <laughs> I know. I think that is an excellent thought to end this chapter with. How can we become agents uh, for light in the world? How can we become the great cloud of witnesses battling in the great battle against the darkness? I think that is most excellent. excellent. And And to everyone else listening to this, I... I adjure you to go join in on the discussion on Instagram and Facebook and um, to find Sarah at Sarah Wonders too. I just say every single week I learn something from the comments. I've learned why Charles Wallace was called Charles Wallace. I learned that Uriel, so the the planet they're at, somebody commented Mm. and said that it means it's a word for the angel of light or the place of light. I love that. That makes sense that they land in this place. So everyone go both comment because I learn from you and then also, um, please go and read everybody else's comments because you'll learn from things too. Sarah, very quickly, where can people find you online? You
1: can find me, um, uh, at sarah Mm -hmm. And that is where you can sign up for my newsletter, which I do on a semi regular basis and we'll be doing more of soon. Um, and you can also find me on Instagram, um, and also Facebook and Twitter, but I'm primarily on Instagram. Um, I'm at Sarah wonders at Sarah with an H and I, I do a lot of posting there, and I also do um, regular readings of poetry, theology, and literature.
0: Oh, well, it'll be a treat to follow along. I do. I look for your posts, and they make me excited, especially when it's uh, Lillian and Flower Crowns.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Who couldn't be excited about Flower Crowns? I'm quite convinced that they aid in the fight against the darkness.
0: Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining me. It's been so much fun, and I look forward to other conversations in the future, I have no doubt.
1: Oh, I do as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.
0: And thank you everyone for listening. And I will catch you around next week.